I don't do anything that doesn't have anything to do with mass atrocities. There's just where I am in my in my life right now. That's all that I really read, and I haven't let, read like a really nice book about anything else in I don't know five six years. But that makes me good at my job, you know. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, we're here doing uh, asymmetrical haircuts yet again, but we seem to be in a cemetery this time. Yes, we have a very special location because, well, we have our guest, Eva Vokosic. And Eva has a research assistant. True, Joy, a small cockapoo. But uh, Joy isn't your only research assistant. She's, uh, she's this week's one. You have them regularly? Well, I babysit dogs. They keep me company, as you know. Uh, so uh, some people were just like, oh, hey, we're going away for three weeks. Would you mind? And look, she even has a bow tie. And so they were like, oh, would you mind uh, babysitting our dog? And then she came to meet us. And I saw this, this, this poopy. That's how we call them. This poopy has potential. Right? And you see? No, it's really, she's really nice. So, and so this is your PhD stress reliever? Yes, absolutely. And general life stress reliever. <laughs> yes, her and all of her other buddies that, that we, you see, look at this face. How could, you know, it increases your life quality and your happiness by 25% immediately. Yeah, we have a whole picture of Twitter feeds of Eva, a different research assistant with the book she's reading now. So we'll put that up on the website so you can see. Um, Eva, we're talking to you now about your PhD about paramilitaries, but tell us a bit about the other stuff you do so that we don't only think of you as paramilitary lady. So I work at Utrecht University. Um, uh, I teach there as well. So I teach genocide and mass violence in a historical context to students. Um, I provide a lot of commentary for media on trials and things like that. Um, yeah, and I'm finishing now my PhD. So that really is dominating my time. Uh, but one, I think, always needs to have some other things going on as well, just to be able to sort of take a breath uh, uh, and then return to it a little bit later. Can you tell us what you're researching exactly? What's your PhD going to say? So my PhD is just days from being submitted to my supervisors. Um, I write about Serbian paramilitaries uh, in the breakup of Yugoslavia. So I basically look at um, where they come from, uh, what they do, what kind of violence they commit, um, how they transform throughout the 1990s, and what do they do to the state and society that they quote unquote belong to. Um, so it's a study of sort of the life cycle of uh, Serbian paramilitaries in the uh, wars of the former Yugoslavia. Who might we have heard of in this context? I mean, for somebody who's not a specialist on the Balkan wars, particularly in paramilitaries, give some examples. Um, they would have probably heard of Arkan, uh, who is this, it's very difficult to describe him. He was this very uh, sort of accomplished, organized criminal slash smuggler slash government hired assassin slash paramilitary commander and pop icon and also a little bit of a politician. So they might have heard of uh, Arkan. Uh, they might have heard of the Scorpions um, because they were part of the Milosevic trial. That was this really important video that was shown. So some of these people I think are, you know, the, your audience may have may have heard of before. When you look at Arkan and, and other paramilitaries in, in Serbia, they are not just paramilitaries as you say they are kind of pop icons they have their own kind of cultural aura around them H how do you s do you see that still in in current serbian society 
well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that, that make them, some of them are actually, I think, even iconic. Uh, uh, Legia, for example, he was the commander of the Special Operations Unit. He's now serving a, a long prison sentence for killing the Serbian prime minister in 2003. Um, I think there's, there's a, a bit of sort of um, appreciation, so to say, of masculinity that goes into this. What do you mean masculinity? I mean that there's a reverence for men who seem like men and buffed up and they carry weapons and they sweep women off their feet and they def- they defend the nation. I think there's a certain reverence in in public space for that kind of thing. I think there's a I think there's a history of paramilitary and irregular armed forces in the region historically in the 19th and 20th century. So I don't think it's a new thing in Serbia or or the region more generally. Uh, so I think there's a couple of things like that. The, the fact that Arkan married this enormously popular uh, pop singer, I think, also contributed to this. Uh, so I think there's a couple of factors that make uh, that make some of these men uh, really pop icons, basically. You say it's it's all over the region. It's still the same. This this appreciation of the is that also what what kind of aided the rise of militias why in this war did you see so many militias or do we see them everywhere but they're just more flamboyant more out there in this one in the 1990s uh, yugoslav wars i think research shows that irregular armed forces paramilitaries militias or pro-government militias there's a varied ways in which they're called in research i think there's that's really a global phenomenon and it's not a modern one either um but but something that i think made them um very common in the former Yugoslavia was first of all government action. So these are not necessarily some spontaneous uh, uh, sort of groups that just spring up out of nowhere. Uh, in the Serbian case, I think they were very much a result of coordination between various government uh, institutions that had an interest in setting up sort of an auxiliary uh, uh, force to the regular uh, army. So I um, I think there's I think there's often um, uh, sort of Uh, purposeful action behind it by governments and government institutions that it's not necessarily uh, often the case that just sort of people rise up spontaneously. How do you actually do the study of these people? Is it all related to the evidence that was heard at the former Yugoslav tribunal and now the mechanism, the the following on uh, tribunal, that, or or is it from other sources? Uh, so I mostly use ICTY, so Yugoslav Tribunal archives from the past 25 years of trial. There's a couple of trials that I use more more than more than others, but I complement these sources also with, for example, uh, uh, memoirs of people that were involved, be it political leaders or uh, military leaders as well. So they were proud of what they did. They wrote their own memoirs. Some of them did. Legia, for example, who I already mentioned, who's serving a sentence for several crimes, but also the murder of the prime minister. He wrote 16 books, actually. Not all of them uh, sort of about himself, but a lot of them about sort of military life and and uh, that kind of thing. But I complimented also, for example, there were trials in Serbia on the murder of the prime minister and other abductions and, and uh, other uh, crimes that these uh, people were involved in. So transcripts, uh, documents, military reports, uh, intercepts, obviously, which witness statements as well, but I also complement that with uh, media interviews, with video and and images. So it's really a, a patchwork of different kind of sources, but more than anything else, really, it is the ICTY uh, archives. I've spent a couple of years working in prosecution in Bosnia, so sort of hands-on experience from there in those cases as well. Um, so yeah, it's ICTY cases, mo- archives mostly, but not exclusively.
And in the ICTY archives, we see a lot of your frustration on Twitter, where you show the stuff that doesn't get shown, where it's like, dear Mr. Mladic, redacted, redacted, redacted. How how um, unpractical is it for you as a researcher to have this all this redacted stuff? It's very, very frustrating. Uh, I think what I want to say is that I, I understand that there's, there's legitimate reasons for things to be sometimes redacted and closed off to the public in war crimes trials. But I think in some cases that discuss paramilitary engagement uh, in the former Yugoslavia, and most notably for people that follow this trial, the Stanisic Simatovic case, as is a very sort of non-transparent process. For a researcher, that's a frustration. Asanisis and Timatovic will just clear up. They are, this is the trial that is one of the few trials that is still ongoing uh, at the mechanism. And it is the two uh, men who ran the secret service under uh, former Yugoslav president Slobodan Milosevic. I think we should also clear up again that Apparently, there's somebody who's actually chipping away at a gravestone, making a beautiful gravestone for somebody. And that's what we're hearing, sort of the, the banging in the in the background as well. As we're out here in this amazing space walking. Um, well, we sat down for a moment, but we're generally walking Joy, our research assistant, who's decided to go asleep to sleep in the shade because uh, we're being so boring. <laughs> So it's a warm day and it's really a, b- a beautiful space. This is uh, this is a, a wonderful cemetery. I come here sometimes for walks uh, and I think it's such a beautiful uh, surrounding. She's probably really relaxed and just wants to chill out. Does your research assistant actually contribute then? Does does she bark once for Arkan and twice for Stanisic? Or what, what does she do? Her, her main responsibility is to keep me sane. <laughs> that, that's what she does. Uh, uh, so I th- just the company and sort of the positive energy because PhD research is draining. It's emotionally uh, quite taxing um, and intellectually as well. So uh, Joy and her other assistant friends that I sometimes host uh, are just there to, you know, to just keep me sane. Okay, back to the uh, the more important questions, Stephanie. Well, uh, the last time we talked, or I think when I was at a... a a research you talked about um, reading the transcript of Legia's trial and you thought you had found the title for your thesis. So I'm really wondering now with its days from being turned in, is it going to be called that? No, uh, that's actually from the Scorpions trial. So this is Slobodan Medic Boca, who was the Scorpions commander who was being uh, tried in Serbia for the, the, the murder of six uh, uh, people after the fall of Srebrenica. Um, and uh, in the context of talking about the unit, uh, he says something along the lines, um, uh, I love pussy, the rifle and the state. Um, and that's what I've, you know, that's, you know, that's everything about me. And I'm not sorry uh, about being a guy like that. Um, so for a while, I was sort of joking that my book is going to be called The Pussy, the Rifle and the State. And then, you know, subtitle Serbian paramilitaries in the breakup of Yugoslavia. I don't know if that's going to fly with uh, the editors <laughs> once I submit my manuscript. <laughs> but, you know, it, I'm, I'm definitely putting it out there on the table because jokes aside, I think I think it says quite a lot about sort of the the, the kind of men that some of these men were. So uh, absolutely not everyone, but I think it talks about this masculinity, it talks about militarism, and it talks about sort of the the sense of duty towards this, the, the state. So I think it really perfectly sort of encapsulates some of the, the feeling that, that some of these guys had. What have you seen in your in your research about what kind of person should we be scared of? Can you see a pattern? 
Um, let me just first say that as much as it seems sort of counterintuitive, maybe we should not necessarily think that all of them are murderers and rapists because they're really not. These are thousands and thousands of people that went for various reasons to fight in, in irregular armed forces and paramilitaries. Some of them are horrible rapists and murderers. Some of them are unenthusiastic murderers, but some of them are observers who sometimes sort of end up through peer pressure, through economic pressure, through being young and naive. All kinds of reasons uh, sort of lead people into irregular uh, armed units and uh, paramilitaries. Some of the things that I can uh, uh, sort of uh, notice is that, you know, there's a lot of these guys that are about the pussy, the rifle and the state. But beyond that, there's just a lot of really unremarkable people who had unremarkable lives before and went to unremarkable lives uh, after they went from uh, back from uh, from war. Uh, so that's something that I really noticed and that sort of uh, clashed a little bit with my own uh, preconceptions about what it was to um, to expect. Also, I should also just say that there's a variety of paramilitaries and there's actually quite a lot of difference between them, uh, how they're set up and what kind of violence they commit. Uh, so it's a little bit difficult actually to say, you know, who who would be like a typical paramilitary member. I was wondering about this actual term paramilitary uh, in itself. Um, it just means irregular armed forces, but there are many different types, you say. In academia, there's never adjust anything. <laughs> I just want to say that's a very good question, a really legitimate one. Um, the first uh, year, pretty much, I've spent uh, trying to figure out what that means. I can't say that there is a there is a consensus in academia or in practice about what is meant when one says paramilitary, um, based on all the research that I've done and based on other people's um, definitions. I came to define it as a organized group of men. So it's a group of men that is it's mostly men, right? It's armed, it has a certain structure, it's organized, um, it has some kind of an insignia or a way of others to recognize it. Um, it is also hierarchical in some way, and it has a political goal, meaning that we need something to differentiate it from just like an organized crime gang with no particular uh, political goal. Uh, so those are, I think, some of the things that uh, are important to say about paramilitaries. Um, and different people in different contexts sometimes define it a little bit differently. But it's basically any unit that, when established, is not part of the regular army or the police. What kind of violence are we speaking about that the, these people are involved in? Um, well, uh, something that was very common in the former Yugoslavia, obviously, uh, were uh, sort of arbitrary arrests. And then after that, beatings... And, and killings, just people sort of being taken to a prison, beaten and then dying as a result of that or being shot. Uh, it was very common uh, uh, to uh, uh, abuse civilians in some way, but torture was actually not something that all the units were involved in. There's a certain type of unit that is, for example, more likely to, I don't know, rip your nipples off or, or things like that. So that's something that I, for example, didn't know. Uh, and I used to sort of and I think not only me but I think generally speaking every single book about the breakup of Yugoslavia mentions paramilitaries but they tend to treat them very often in bulk and I think that's a mistake uh, because there's a lot of differences between them how they operate who they actually recruit how they recruit and what they do once they're out there. You talk about your research and that there are certain groups of um, paramilitaries more um, likely to commit the kind of atrocities and torture and um, what have you learned about what influences that? 
Uh, while research is, in other contexts shown that, for example, uh, alcohol and, and drug abuse is something that often contributes to people losing this, a sense sort of inhibition and then engaging in maybe some kind of a behavior that they normally uh, wouldn't. Um, but I think it has a lot to do with recruitment. Uh, some units are very liberal about accepting pretty much anyone. Um, and then people join in with all kinds of reasons. Sometimes those reasons have to do with personal vendettas and ways of uh, enriching themselves and ways of, for example, having the opportunity to torture the guy that slept with your wife 10 years ago. Um, so I found uh, some of that to be inspired sometimes by very personal reasons and personal targeted uh, kind of violence, uh, so recruitment, uh, alcohol, and um, and drug abuse. And I would say th a third factor, which is not about the individual as much as it is about the state and sort of the, the context, it's impunity. If the state or the authorities in the area that is torn by war or where conflict is going on, if there is no initiative by the authorities to actually arrest and prosecute people that do the most horrific things, then those are much more likely to happen again. I mean, it's not it's not surprising, uh, but it's really something that is shown in, in patterns if you look at it systematically. You've spent quite a few years working in this very specific area, making your own definitions and really getting a lot of information. What was it that drew you into it to start with? Um, well, I guess it depends a little bit on what we consider a start. I started working on war crimes trials about 15 years ago. So for context, I'm 38. Um, and it's because I think for two reasons. One is that I'm a former Yugoslav myself. So I was alive when there was a war. Um, I uh, luckily wasn't uh, directly victimized by it, but I saw a lot of damage that, that war uh, can do. And I observed a lot of that sort of eroding my own society. Um, so that's one reason I'm a former Yugoslav and it seems like it's something that concerns me and that I should know about. But, but why specifically paramilitaries? Because there's so many aspects to your war. That, that's where I got started off of sort of 13 years ago. And then I, through studying trials and, and war crimes, I figured out um, that paramilitaries are one of the actors that gets mentioned most often. But I think, as I said before, we're a little bit... Um, it's not always clear enough. It's not always... Uh, it's, yeah, it's just not clear enough the, the differences between uh, these different actors and how exactly they were set up and what exactly did they do. Because as I said, in every single book about the former Yugoslavia, you have paramilitaries, but there's actually very little detail about A, perpetrators, and B, perpetration as action. What do they do? We know this if you watch trials, but if you read books, you don't know, you know, okay, they beat people up, but but how? They kill people, okay, but how? What patterns can we see? And I think that's important because they can that can also enrich research elsewhere. Um, and I think that's why paramilitaries are a, a really good actor to study, because they're important and they're understudied. Okay, so studying all these trials and, and learning about the what paramilitaries do and why they do it, has it taught you something about your own country, which is Croatia, and how the war over there went? Does it give you a different insight? It gives me a different insight or sort of more details because coming in, I already knew a lot about the former Yugoslavia. I spent, you know, 10 years working in war crimes trials in the region. So I, I, I would say it gives me depth of understanding about the former Yugoslavia, Croatia, not as much. I mean, Croatia was obviously involved, but it doesn't give me like, oh, oh my God, I never, you know, the, the, nothing like that happened. Uh, but I think something that it did, did give me is that obviously when you research Serbian paramilitaries, you start off with researching paramilitaries, punt. So... I now understand much more about various kinds of units and various kinds of places. And what I figured out there is that paramilitarism as a phenomenon is really global. 
Um, it has a wide historical reach, a lot of variety and dynamism. And I think the way wars are ongoing and are likely to go on in the future, also for example, with private military companies, I think paramilitaries are something that we're going to have to look at with much more attention because I think we're moving away more and more from regular military kind of conflicts and I think we're looking more into these more ambiguous ways and fighting you know with outsourcing violence and that kind of thing and I think in that regard paramilitaries are really important. So it showed you more about how universal this is than it is necessarily about this being a Balkans thing. Yes, it's it's I, w- I would say it sort of has two tracks. One track of the research is to figure out the details about the former Yugoslavia and the Serbian paramilitary specifically. And the other track is to, okay, what does this that we found out about Serbian paramilitaries tell us about paramilitaries more globally? Um, I think that's, that's something that when you're trying to do research, you do your topic, but you're also trying to speak to issues that are wider than that. So do you also get contacted maybe by people working on Syria? Syria is another conflict where there's a lot of different armed groups, semi-organized, paramilitary. Absolutely. Uh, We have had contact and a colleague of mine in Utrecht, actually, uh, Ugur Ungor, is working on Syria specifically. But there's a lot of other people who work on Iraq and who work on Colombia and who work on all kinds of different contexts, present and past. And it's really something that you can can see across uh, uh, cases. Um, uh, Variety? Uh, in in one sense, but also in the other sense, there are commonalities uh, that, you, that you can see uh, across cases. And I think it's really that kind of conversation that is going to push us forward in terms of research. And do you see yourself now, I mean, this is the former Yugoslavia, you almost have your, your PhD finished. So then what's next? Well, I think in order to do really, really serious research, one needs to be, you know, really sort of dipped into language and culture. Uh, uh, so I don't want to be pretentious and be like, well, yeah, tomorrow I'm just going to start doing Iraq because that's not how it works. And it shouldn't. That's not how it should work. Uh, but I would definitely Definitely, I'm definitely staying in in war crimes and in mass violence and in war crimes trials, be it in academia or in practice. Um, And and that's something that I'm committed to. Uh, uh, Now, what specific context, what specific job and what specific project, I don't know. I'm looking forward to just getting my PhD uh, done. I do a lot of teaching as well. I have a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, But in any case, I'm I'm committed to war crimes uh, trials and war crimes and mass violence research. And we'll see where it takes me. So... You've done this before because you're our first guinea pig. um, And we have three questions we always ask on asymmetrical haircuts. So um, we're going to ask you again. What is the one thing that people get wrong about your research? That I'm always sad and depressed and that this kind of work is automatically, you know, it's, oh, poor you. Why do you do this to yourself? I hate that. Don't, you know, I love my work. This work is interesting and it's intellectually stimulating. And I think it's important. And uh, this attitude of like, oh, poor you, why are you doing this to yourself? I really don't do that. And is there one question that uh, people like us journalists never ask you that we should have asked you? Um, uh, well, that's a, that's a very good question. I guess background, because you always have such a small you know, a window to tell a certain story. And I think researchers generally like, but context, but footnotes, you know, so I think that's something that I think journalists, because of their, their job, they're sometimes thrown into things. And I, I, I get it. But I think for journalists, I think it would always be a good idea to try to get as much background and as much context as, as possible. Okay, and then the last question is, is there anything you've read or seen or heard recently that you found really interesting and maybe has nothing to do with, um, you know, mass atrocities? 
I don't do anything that doesn't have anything to do with mass atrocities. There's just where I am in my in my life right now. That's all that I really read, and I haven't let, read like a really nice book about anything else in I don't know five six years. But that makes me good at my job, you know. Um, what I would recommend, um, I've read a, a, a billion books, and people can you know find me on Twitter and ask me if you have specific questions. But something that I would recommend for sort of broad audiences, it's a do- the documentary that was recently released on the trial of Ratko Mladic. I think I've seen a thousand billion documentaries on war crimes and war crimes trials. Half of them are not very good, I think. This one is excellent. And and it's it's in-depth. It's not sort of uh, uh, focusing on, you know, scandal and, oh my God, this guy's a monster. Um, uh, so I think it's a really good for people that are just, you know, broadly interested in the topic. I think the, the uh, documentary, The Trial of Ratko Mladic, is really an excellent investment in terms of time. What a great recommendation uh, Eva gave us on that walk. I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed that documentary as well because it gave you such an insight into both sides, both defence and prosecution. You enjoyed the walk, Stephanie? I enjoyed the walk and I was told by somebody who listened to the podcast that it's very good that both me and Eva had to walk so we couldn't talk as fast as we normally do uh, at each other. Um, I really also enjoyed the trial of Radko Mladic and uh, documentary and I would recommend everybody to go and watch it. I think you might still be able to see it on Uitzending Gemist in the Netherlands. So we want to thank Eva for coming on the show and taking time off from writing her PhD thesis um, for the University of Utrecht. She's also a visiting research fellow at King's College in London in the War Studies Department. And we should also say thank you to her lending her dog to us as she uh, as she did the walk as well yes so also thanks to joy the cockapoo who was a very good boy or good girl during all of the talk and didn't bark once which was not so good for radio but very lovely for talking um, since the this walk i uh, spoke to eva and her thesis has been handed in yeah she's gonna defend it in a couple of months it's called Serbian paramilitaries in the breakup of Yugoslavia. Sadly, not the pussy, the rifle, and the state, which I'm hoping that the book will be called that. Well, we'll look out wants, for that. But we'll look out for that. Um, so we'll tell you how the thesis uh, defending went in a couple of months. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening to Asymmetrical Haircuts. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Show notes and additional blogs are available on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.